Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter and today I'm here with Dr. Peter Richardson. He is a distinguished professor emeritus of the Department of Environmental Science and Policy at the University of California, Davis. He's a biologist with interest in cultural evolution, animal social learning, and mathematical models. He's also the author of books like Culture and the Evolutionary Process, Not by Genes Alone, How Culture Transformed Human Evolution, and The Origin and Evolution of Cultures, all of them written in collaboration with Dr. Robert Boyd. So, Dr. Richardson, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you a lot for taking the time. My pleasure. Okay, great. So, the first question I would like to ask you, Dr. Richardson, is uh, why would a biologist like you become interested in studying culture and cultural evolution and other processes like that? Well, I got interested in it because I was asked to uh, uh, teach a course with a fellow, with a colleague. I was uh, hired into an interdisciplinary teaching unit and half of my uh, departmental colleagues were social scientists and a, and a, a sociologist. It, it was a brand new department. <clears throat> my sociologist colleague had, had uh, uh, been instrumental in setting up the new department. He'd written a course into the books called The Principles of Human Ecology. And when it came time to teach it, he wanted to teach it with a natural scientist. And so I uh, learned uh, through some casual reading that there were people who called themselves cultural ecologists, anthropologists who called themselves cultural ecologists. And, and I had pretty good training in evolution. So I thought if there are cultural adaptations, then there ought to be uh, a process like natural or processes like natural selection that generated uh, those uh, adaptations. So I went to the library looking to find out what the, uh, these cultural ecologists uh, thought about uh, about uh, cultural adaptations. And it turned out their thoughts on the subject were actually pretty crude. So uh, I uh, was teaching a different course with Rob Boyd at the same time. And uh, he and I fell to talking about what I discovered in, in going to the library to get material for lectures and we eventually decided that there was a rich problem that, uh, that you could use the same basic concepts and tools that uh, evolutionary biologists use to study the evolution of genes and apply them to culture. So that's the long and the short of it. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So I think that it is very important for us to start off by defining what is culture because I mean I've been talking a lot with uh, anthropologists uh, and people who do work in ev in cultural evolution and even evolutionary psychologists, but it is a bit difficult for people to agree on a definition of culture. So what would be your def definition or perhaps the one that, that is considered the best for anthropology and other disciplines like that? Well, well, it's endlessly controversial, but uh, everybody points to the same general kinds of uh, of things, I think. And uh, uh, so Rob and I have def defined culture uh, as those things that you acquire by 
uh, imitation and teaching from other people. So it's a, uh, a form of information that spreads from one person to another. You can work uh, out of behave, you imitate other people, or they, your parents teach you. To, uh, Rob and I have defined culture as those things that you, information that you acquire from other people by teaching and, and learning, uh, excuse me, teaching and imitation. Uh, so uh, that's the the basic definition we use. There, there are lots of definitions of culture, uh, but uh, I think they all have uh, uh, something in common, which is this uh, acquisition of information from other people by teaching and learning, teaching and imitation, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, okay, and, and uh, since we're talking about culture and cultural evolution, uh, are there any units of selection? Because I guess that we are comparing cultural evolution with uh, biological or genetic evolution in this case. So since the unit of selection in biology or uh, evolutionary biology is the gene, is there a correspondent thing in cultural evolution, like, for example, ideas, beliefs, norms, or something like well, that? Well, yes, all of those kinds of things count. There are many domains of culture from things like uh, uh, subsistence techniques, uh, skills. Uh, uh, now, uh, people think that the in biology that the gene is the unit, and that uh, that it's all a very clean, uh, clean uh, system of selection on on genes. But that's a bit of a uh, mistake in biology as as well. So most of the uh, so selection in the first instance falls on phenotypic characters like like height, for example, or uh, or other other dimensional features like that that are essentially continuous because there are so many genes. Uh, contributing to their to their uh, to the phenotype that you you can't identify particular uh, genes that uh, uh, that uh, at least it's difficult to do that and uh, culture we don't have any reason to think that there are gene-like units anyway uh, in other words uh, 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 pollsters measure people's uh, political preferences on a on a continuous scale from right to left right uh, and there's no reason to think that that uh, that it isn't a, a quantitative character, a lot like uh, like genetic characters. On the other hand, some things are pretty discrete. So you belong to a particular religion, or you uh, are a citizen of a particular country, or you're not. And that's a little bit like uh, uh, we have a party, so to speak, uh, cultural gene, so to speak, and I have a an American one, and and uh, uh, so. Uh, uh, you can so in in terms of mathematical models that we build, we look uh, we've looked at both uh, continuously varying characters and discrete characters. It's uh, and you know, I think it's a, a a case by case basis in the in the case of uh, of culture. We don't have any reason to uh, to expect we'll ever find uh, uh, a particular uh, unit. Mm -hmm. Okay, but when we think about culture, we usually associate it with humans, but does it also occur in other species of animals? Well, it turns, it seems to turn out that uh, 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 social animals uh, uh, 
almost always have some at least rudimentary form of social learning uh, culture, if you want. Uh, now, the, the difference is that humans have uh, a sort of a massively cumulative uh, uh, culture. So we, we uh, you know, we're talking over the Internet with using uh, computers and very fancy pieces of uh, machinery. I wonder how many patents there are in our, our uh, uh, thousands, I suppose. So uh, the a considerable length of time uh, piling one innovation on top of another to make it to make extremely complicated objects uh, and our social organization is similar we we operate very complicated societies using institutions and and rules and uh, although there's some rudimentary accumulation in in other form in other animals cultures uh, uh, nothing that approaches the complex complexity of, uh, of human culture. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in that sense, could we say that culture is another aspect of the phenotype of certain organisms like humans and other social animals? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you refer to the fact that humans have a cumulative culture. Do you, uh, would you say that perhaps another big difference between us and other social animals is the fact that humans tend to imitate and even over-imitate in comparison with other animals, that perhaps there isn't any other animal that imitate uh, fellow beings like we do? Well, I think that uh, the uh, evidence from from experimental studies, say, comparing chimpanzees' uh, abilities to learn socially with human abilities to learn socially, uh, humans are are much more accurate imitators than other animals, uh, and, uh, and particularly if you encourage people to to think that uh, uh, some particular cultural act is uh, should be performed very accurately like uh, like a ritual like a religious ritual uh, people get very compulsive about uh, uh, doing exactly what their model uh, has done and uh, we don't see that uh, as far as uh, so far in any other animal besides humans we're the most accurate and speedy imitators uh, or re recipients of teaching uh, compared to uh, to chimpanzees who are pretty good social learners, but they're not nearly as, as good as humans. Mm -hmm. Okay, and in terms of uh, our cognition as humans, what would you say are perhaps the, um, the more important aspects of it that we have to consider when studying the cognitive basis of culture and culture transmission? Well, uh, the developmental colleagues studied how the capacity for imitation gets assembled in, in children. So by the age of about 12 months, uh, uh, kids are, are quite, uh, quite proficient imitators. And it, it, uh, a number of things uh, seem to go into it. Uh, uh, people have a, an a advanced theory of mind, uh, cognitive psychologists say, uh, by which they mean that uh, that uh, people uh, know uh, 
assume that another human being behind the of their of their caretaker, and they try to understand what uh, what people are are using their mind for, and uh, and this seems to enable imitation. Some things are quite uh, simple. So kids uh, uh, have what it's called joint attention. Um, so uh, if if uh, a caregiver is is paying attention to something, they'll they use pointing gestures and and things like that to call a kid's attention to uh, to an object that the that the caretaker is uh, wants the, the the child to pay attention to, and they and they readily do that. Uh, uh, that's the way they. They don't follow gaze and pointing. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, domestic dogs uh, follow human pointing gestures, uh, and uh, uh, wolves don't. So uh, there's this is a capacity that uh, we bred into dogs, probably inadvertently. But uh, uh, we want to train dogs, and dogs want to be trained because they want to please people, and and so they they have a bit of the same uh, psychology. Uh, if, in, in them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess that we could say that it has a lot to do with how our learning processes work, but uh, apart from that, uh, there, there are also a series of biases uh, that, that uh, influence the way we acquire cultural information, like, for example, uh, content biases, context biases, frequency biases, that is, we tend to acquire information from other, uh, from other people in our environment uh, following uh, certain uh, innate proclivities, right? That's what it seems to, uh, it seems to be the case, yes. So, uh, uh, in the case of uh, so uh, uh, the the biases that uh, that we uh, use to uh, to acquire culture, you can think of them as as even pretty small children are smart uh, uh, shoppers in the marketplace of ideas. And some of the techniques that they use are, uh, for example, they they come to understand that some people are competent and some people are incompetent, and they if they prefer to imitate people who are, are competent in, in experimental situations. They also uh, uh, prefer to imitate people that are like them. Uh, and one of the cues is, is language or dialect. So if you, uh, if you have two models, one of which speaks the same uh, uh, language or the dialect as, as the kid and one who, who doesn't, they'll, they'll prefer to imitate the people who are, who are like them in terms of uh, dialect. Interestingly, uh, they're they're more prone to use language as a cue than than skin color, or uh, that probably makes sense, just, uh, because in in the past uh, uh, people wouldn't be exposed to much to people who are physically very different from them. And uh, before 500 years ago, uh, uh, people would be neighboring people would be very similar with regard to things like skin color and and other. Than, than physical attributes like skin color, so uh, 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 skin color would be kind of an irrelevant variable in the in the evolutionary past, whereas dialect would be uh, a very salient one, uh, and kids seem to reflect that. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, but I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, isn't it true that uh, learning processes and the acquisition of culture are things that uh, are cognitively costly? So, uh, would it make sense for us to say that perhaps in humans those things evolved uh, and were adaptive because during uh, the Pleistocene period, uh, 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 and as we evolved as Homo sapiens, we were exposed to uh, flu to fluctuating fluctuating environments, and so that would be a reason why it would be favorable from an evolutionary perspective for us to be able to acquire and develop culture as we do. Yes, uh, that's the option shot of, uh, of the uh, functional analysis of culture that Rob and I did in our 1985 uh, uh, book. What would uh, uh, costly capacity for culture be good for? And, uh, and our conclusion was that it would be uh, useful in, in environments that uh, vary temporally or spatially, and, and partic in particular that uh, culture seems to be an adaptation to environmental variations that uh, occur at an intermediate uh, time scale or spatial scale. So uh, if environments are changing very slowly, uh, uh, then uh, selection on genes will track the environmental variation fairly well. On the other hand, if it's, if it's uh, varying hugely from one generation to the next, then only <coughs> mechanisms of, of phenotypic flexibility like individual learning would be useful. So the environment uh, fluctuate on timescales of a thousand years or so. So uh, it takes a few generations for cultural adaptations to uh, to be perfected, particularly. And uh, on the end, if the environment are varying slowly enough, then genes will keep up, and cost capacity for culture would be most uh, most advantageous in uh, in terms of temporal variation. Uh, when the, there's a lot of variation on the time scales of centuries to uh, to a millennium, and that seems to be characteristic of the Pleistocene, as you mentioned. Uh, uh, there's an enormous amount of variation during ice ages, at least in on time scales of a thousand years or so, and shorter time scales. Uh, um, so uh, that seems to be the kind of world that would uh, favor cultural evolution. Another. Spatial variation uh, is interesting as well. So that one of the things that uh, the, the uh, cooling of the Earth in the last uh, uh, few million years uh, about the same temperature, and the poles have gotten very cold indeed, covered with ice, and so there's more uh, spatial variation uh, from the on the pole to latitude gradient than than there was in past environments. So that's another thing we adapt finally to, uh, on a fine scale to temporal, excuse me, to spatial variation. So their agricultural uh, subsistence systems uh, to, uh, uh, to the environment, different cultivars in, in different habitats and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay, but, but since uh, there were other animals that also were exposed to those fluctuating environmental conditions, is it the case that uh, it was humans who really developed uh, 
this capacity for accumulating culture and things like that because perhaps we were the ones that uh, that had the correct pre-adaptations for cultural acquisition and accumulation or or not yeah i think that's the uh, 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 that's certainly my interpretation of of our history is humans uh, uh, come from a lineage that has larger than average uh, brains of primates, particularly the apes have uh, relatively large brains. Uh, uh, humans then became bipedal with the Australopithecines and that our hands to become specialized for making. Uh, so I think that uh, humans have, uh, have three uh, critical pre-adaptations. One is a relatively large brain uh, that we inherited from our ape ancestors. The second is we is our free hands uh, so uh, that we inherited from our australopithecine ancestors uh, once they became bipedal our forelimbs didn't need to involve locomotion and so people uh, uh, became able to use their hands in a in a very precise uh, way so we have a, a power grip and we can uh, bang on on stones in a in a uh, way that allows us to make stone tools and and uh, people have gone to a lot of trouble to try to get chimpanzees to make stone tools and and they just aren't that good at it because their hands aren't aren't uh, set up uh, for uh, making uh, uh, stone tools so uh, technology is is a specialty that we have uh, uh, special uh, important adaptive feature of, of culture that uh, depends upon having our hands and finally uh, the third uh, pre-adaptation I think is we're pretty social animals so we lived in in uh, fairly large troops and of um, and uh, and cult the other major thing that culture does is is allow us to build complex societies using rules so that we can transmit by language and so uh, uh, so I think the, those three pre-adaptations uh, meant that humans uh, became uh, uh, much more cultural than other animals. Now, other animals also got brainier uh, recently, so there's a long-term trend toward larger brains in many mammalian lineages. So, so it's not that we're uh, completely unique. Uh, uh, the other animals have uh, presumably been getting more cultured in response to this the same environmental fluctuations and and more individual learning. Big brains are seem to be good for both individual and social learning. So uh, uh, the other animals have, have been uh, uh, adapting in the same general way, but but humans have those having those preadaptations to this fancy cumulative culture. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And in what circumstances? Uh, does culture also become part of the environment and we and it becomes another selective pressure on humans for example because i mean we've been talking about culture as being another aspect of an organism's phenotype but uh, from a certain point on at least uh, there are at least some parts of culture that also uh, exert selective pressures on on our genomes, li like we have in uh, gene culture coevolution, right? Right. So, uh, uh, I mean, one 
of the things we do is build uh, 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 shelters and, and modify the environment in, in, in various uh, ways. Uh, so uh, here we are, uh, tropical by ancestry, and you know, we have populations that live north of the Arctic that have fancy clothing and fancy shelters, and and uh, so uh, uh, people who live in the Arctic are are compact uh, uh, people. So they've evolved uh, 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 to uh, uh, slow down their rate of heat loss. Uh, uh, so we don't don't depend just on clothing, but uh, clothing allows us to to uh, pioneer in very cold environments and, and shelters and and then the uh, selection actually alters our biology to uh, cope with those uh, uh, cold conditions because every once in a while your your boat capsizes or your so uh, I think the best worked out the best worked out example Example we have of gene culture coevolution is adult lactase. So all young mammals have a an enzyme lactase to break into it's a 12 carbon sugar to break it into two six carbon sugars that you can then absorb through your gut, and uh, so uh, at the same time it's it's uh, useful enzyme once we uh, have a age of, of the production of, of lactase. Uh, uh, ceases in in most mammals and in most human populations as well, uh, but in populations like Europeans that have a long history of dairying, uh, we have adult lactase persistence. So uh, just doesn't it's broken in in humans that have adult lactase persistence. So we uh, produce lact uh, lactase uh, uh, throughout our Lives and that makes it easier to uh, uh, drink milk, and we get more calories out of milk. About forty percent of the calories are in milk are in in lactase, lactose, and uh, animals that don't have lactase uh, 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 can't get that uh, that nutrition from the milk sugar. So uh, it seems as if dairying has repeatedly uh, caused the evolution of adult lactase persistence. So in in dairying populations in Africa. But not in populations that don't have a long history of dairy. Uh, uh, Africans also have this adult lactase uh, uh, persistence, uh, uh, and other people that don't have a long history of dairy. For example, East Asians, uh, 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 their lactase production just shuts down when they're about the time they're weaned, just like uh, it does in in all other mammals. So that's a situation where the uh, where culture set up an environment where lactose was a, uh, a potentially useful uh, item of nutrition for uh, adults and uh, and then uh, selection on that created selection on genes for this lactase persistence trait. Mm -hmm. Okay, so since I've already had people on the show like Dr. Lida Cosmedes, we talked about the concept that she and Dr. Tooby created of the evoked culture, that is, certain aspects of our, of our environment evoking 
uh, a culture or certain cultural traits in groups of people but it uh, but now that i'm talking with you it seems that that's not all that there is to culture because it seems to me at least from all of what you've just been saying that uh, there are also aspects of culture uh, that uh, they themselves change perhaps some innate proclivities that we have and uh, and i mean in your books you also talk about uh, how culture might influence even things like our mating systems and other aspects like that correct yes uh, so uh, 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 John and Lide historically have argued that uh, <clears throat> that uh, uh, people have many purpose uh, uh, cognitive modules that uh, uh, guide our behavior and Rob's and my uh, position is that uh, the uh, biases that we have are much more general purpose than than that, uh, and uh, we our cultural content is not closely controlled by uh, by specific uh, biases for for mating, for example. Uh, now we have uh, uh, we certainly do have uh, biological adaptations for uh, for mating. Uh, uh, a neurobiologist by the name of Jack Panksepp uh, uh, studied uh, uh, the emotional proclivities of uh, of uh, mammals in general, and uh, and he argues that there are these highly conserved uh, brainstem uh, features in in mammals that uh, give us a specific suite of uh, of <clears throat> emotions, and one of the emotions is he calls lust is uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, closely related to mating, and uh, 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 but humans endlessly uh, uh, tinker with uh, with mating, right? Uh, so uh, uh, historically, uh, 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 Western Europeans uh, uh, delayed marriage until uh, they uh, uh, had a, a, a living to uh, were able to make a living, and uh, uh, so. Uh, uh, in the early modern period, Europeans uh, tended to marry quite late in life compared to uh, to most other human populations. So uh, that's an example of uh, of uh, and it turns out that in those periods, uh, the uh, number of, of children that were born out of wedlock seems to have been so small that demographers ignore it. Uh, so uh, we can can uh, uh, control our lust to a uh, uh, to fit uh, uh, cultural patterns of of mating. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's very interesting because if I'm not mistaken, at least initially, the sociobiologists argued that uh, when referring to culture, that the only types of cultural content that would be successfully transmitted between generations would be the ones that would contribute to increasing our fitness, either personal or inclusive. But uh, it is also the case that there are aspects of culture that might even be maladaptive, correct? Sure, uh, uh, and the 
a recent demographic transition in in human populations is a, it seems to be as a spectacular example. So uh, uh, we most human populations now are uh, engaged in at least uh, starting their demographic transition, by which demographers mean uh, going from a situation where uh, the completed fertility of the average woman is something like uh, uh, seven births per, per woman to uh, under, uh, I don't know what Portugal is now, but probably uh, a bit under two, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so we're not even, uh, uh, many societies aren't even at replacement fertility there. Uh, and in uh, countries like uh, Japan that underwent their demographic transition uh, fairly recently, but uh, a rather extreme demographic transition there, their, uh, the population is, is shrinking. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, and at the same time, we have other, uh, a few uh, cultures uh, or subcultures, you might call them, the North American Anabaptists, the Amish and the Hutterites and the Mennonites. Uh, uh, the uh, Many of their communities still have completed fertilities on the order of seven kids per, per woman, and so those populations are exploding at the same time uh, many other populations are, are slowly shrinking. So uh, 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 we certainly can acquire what look like cultural maladaptations. Mm -hmm. Okay, and since we've already touched a little bit uh, on some alternatives people have been putting forth I mean, alternatives to your and Dr. Boyd's approach to culture and cultural evolution, like Cosmides and Tubi's uh, evoked culture and also the sociobiologists. Could you please tell us also a little bit about uh, memetics as an alternative approach uh, and perhaps the places where you think it fails? as an approach to explain how human culture works and is transmitted? Well, uh, so the, uh, the meme concept uh, was introduced in, in uh, uh, Richard Dawkins' uh, uh, famous book, the, the Selfish Gene. And so his idea was that uh, cultural elements that he called memes were, were like uh, infectious uh, Diseases they inf infected your mind, and they, they so that uh, he kind of implied that uh, as with the selfish genes that there was an agency at the level of of, of genes and memes, and there certainly are uh, uh, things that kind of answer to that uh, description. So. Uh, 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 substance abuse, addictions, uh, uh, acts uh, sort of like selfish uh, memes, right? They're they're not good for you, but uh, uh, but if at least if people are susceptible, they can't uh, they may not be able to really effectively resist uh, taking some dangerous uh, or debilitating uh, uh, drug. Uh, 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 but uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, that. Uh, selection, if you want to think of it this way, in, in culture acts at, at several different levels. So on the one hand, we have selfish memes. On the other hand, most of the culture that we acquire is is good for us, right? We learn skills and and uh, uh, and social institutions that uh, that favor our, our individual level fitness. Humans are 
I mean, we're spectacularly successful, right, uh, in terms of the number, the human biomass on the planet. Uh, uh, so, uh, and it, and also then uh, we are very group oriented. So humans compete, uh, uh, firms compete with each other, countries compete with each other, religions compete with each other. So we have these uh, group level adaptations, which are also seem to be really important. So uh, uh, the mean concept, I think, uh, uh, is, uh, I mean, you, there's no harm in thinking of cultural variance as, as memes, I guess, uh, but uh, uh, the, the idea that, uh, that there's only agency, so to speak, at the, at the, uh, at the level of, of little particles of kind of uh, cultural trait, uh, that, uh, and, and in general, culture uh, does a lot of things that uh, such meme-like uh, particles wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's inter interesting that you refer to uh, adaptations at the group level. So I would like to ask you, uh, do you think that group selection operates at the cultural level or that it also operates at the genetic level, and if so, uh, how? Well, so, uh, as I uh, was saying, uh, groups compete with each other, right? We're organized uh, to, uh, uh, to compete with, e with each other. So the uh, churches, for example, have, uh, have pastors whose job it is to try to attract uh, recruits, uh, right? Uh, to try to attract believers, and uh, so uh, uh, the uh, churches are, are many churches are set up to proselytize and and try to uh, uh, to expand the church at the expense of, of other churches. Uh, uh, so uh, it, it seems to me that uh, we see uh, lots of cultural variation at the level of, of groups. Uh, uh, so <clears throat> languages are are an interesting example. Uh, uh, the English people are uh, are not uh, uh, are genetically very different from, let's say, Danes and and people from uh, the immediate vicinity in the European continent. Because I mean, uh, waves of migrants have swept over the British Isles uh, uh, for as far back as we can trace them, and uh, and so, uh, for example, uh, the Vikings. Uh, uh, seized parts, large parts of, of Britain and pioneered there and, and uh, in the Middle Ages. And uh, so uh, the genetic difference between English and Danes is vanishingly small, right? Uh, and the difference between uh, Portuguese people and, and uh, uh, Spanish-speaking people on the other side of the border is, is, is also uh, vanishingly small, the genetic difference. On the other hand, languages are are just uh, the tip of an iceberg. Uh, uh, Danish society is a bit different than English society. From many nations within within Spain, right? Uh, uh, so uh, 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 there's a lot of cultural variation at the at the uh, level of of uh, subnational and national uh, cultures. Uh, so the uh, in Britain, uh, the uh, uh, the Scots think of themselves as different from the uh, English, and the Welsh think of themselves as different from the English, and 
and uh, even the northern englanders think they're different from the southern englanders and, and i don't know i don't know portugal well enough to uh, to say but uh, there's a lot of cultural variation at the level of pretty large uh, groups and and there's uh, competition between those uh, groups oft times and and uh, and so there's uh, suggests that there's selection. Selection could take uh, uh, three different forms. One is, uh, uh, I, I mean, people can conquer other people and, and convert them to the to their way of life. I mean, the, the Latin countries were uh, conquered by Rome and, and came to speak a, a, a Roman dialect. And, and uh, the, the Latin countries are uh, are. Uh, Coterminous, more or less, with the Roman Empire, except in Latin America, where the uh, Spanish and the Portuguese, uh, again, they they conquered large areas of territory and 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 passed the uh, uh, Latin culture on to uh, uh, people who are mostly genetically uh, 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 Americans, right? Uh, Native Americans. So uh, uh, I think that it, the so that's one form of, of cultural group selection. Another one is is selective borrowing. So when societies are successful, uh, people imitate them, and and when they're unsuccessful, then uh, uh, people tend to try to import ideas. A, a spectacular example is Meiji Restoration in Japan, where the Japanese uh, decided that they needed to acquire all of this uh, technology and social organization that made the Europeans. Uh, uh, superior, so they very deliberately went out and hired American university professors and uh, and uh, German uh, uh, military officers and uh, British naval officers to uh, to uh, come and and train their their uh, students and and army officers and and naval officers. So a, a third way is. Uh, is selective uh, migration. So we see these streams of people from uh, come trying to come to Europe from uh, from Africa and, and Western Asia uh, because the societies that they're uh, from are are uh, broken and uh, European society works a lot better. So people are desperately trying to get uh, from countries that don't work very well to countries that work better and. Uh, at least in the American experience, we've collected uh, uh, such uh, immigrants uh, uh, in many waves, and and by and large, they after a generation or two, they're they're pretty American, and and uh, uh, and so uh, we've uh, American society is is built largely on well, almost entirely on immigration. If you think of the original pioneering settlers, plus all of the waves of immigration that uh, have come since. Mm -hmm. But do you think that we should also consider group selection uh, as acting also at the genetic level, that is as another level uh, of natural, that, natu that natural selection acts on, or, or perhaps, or do you think that uh, mechanisms like 
uh, inclusive fitness and kin selection and reciprocal altruism are enough to explain how people develop a group identity and then it is perhaps uh, more cultural processes that contribute to uh, that piggyback on those evolved cognitive processes and then expand them to include other people with whom we share a group identity but don't really uh, have the chance to establish altruistic relationships with them or something like that. Well, so it seems to me that uh... Uh, it's likely that uh, this phenomenon of coevolution has completely reshaped our, our social psychology. Uh, so, uh, two uh, critical elements of that, I think, are one is that people are uh, fairly docile. So, uh, so uh, you know, you and I, if we uh, we've never met, we go into a we could go into a uh, a bar in in Lisbon or someplace and have a drink and and be we'd be surrounded by other strangers and and we'd be pretty cool with all that. Now uh, chimpanzees uh, are very distrustful of of animals that they don't other chimpanzees that they don't know. They consider them extremely dangerous. So uh, I used to tell my students, uh, uh, you know, I, the first day of a lecture, I've got twenty or thirty or fifty or however many students I've got in a class, and they all come in and sit down quietly and, and wait for me to say something and start the, start the class. You can imagine trying to get, and they're all strangers, they're, they're young, uh, sexually active, or at least wish they were sexually active kids, and uh, uh, if, you, uh, if you could get uh, 50 stranger chimpanzees in the same room, I mean, you might drug them and, and put a hood over their heads and sit them in seats in the classroom and then pull the hood off and uh, hoods off all simultaneously and there'd be a sort of a social nuclear explosion the walls of the classroom would fold out as the as these chimpanzees went nuts uh, because they were surrounded by 50 strangers uh, uh, so uh, humans are are uh, comparatively easygoing uh, uh, in lots of circumstances so that's one example uh, on, uh, Another example is that, that uh, uh, kids uh, very readily learn social norms and uh, behave according to social norms. And uh, uh, Joe Henrik and, and uh, one of his uh, postdocs uh, uh, have a nice uh, paper a few years back uh, on how uh, kids are, uh, are, they sop up norms. They're, they're, people dis uh, describe kids as, as moral Nazis, they, they're very strict about it, about following rules uh, and it almost to a comical uh, uh, stage. So, so humans are docile, but and they're, and they're, they conform readily to rules. Not, not everybody does. Of course, there, we have psychopaths and, and uh, people who uh, don't conform to, uh, to norms. But if you think of a uh, dominance hierarchy, it's, uh, it's basically, uh, all psychopaths, right? Everybody's in a dominance hierarchy. Every individual is out for their own uh, their own success in the in the group, and they care very little about the success of anybody else. And and so humans manage to keep the frequency of psychopaths down to a few percent. Uh, uh, so it seems to me that that that's likely. Well, I mean, it's an ongoing 
thing, right? What psychopaths uh, end up incarcerated and their uh, their fitness is damaged, right? Uh, uh, off time. So uh, uh, it's uh, a situation where uh, ongoing punishment, presumably, is is a selective factor that uh, that uh, keeps people in, in a uh, the frequency of norm following high and the frequency of norm violation uh, low. And so that seems to me to be a product of a long history of, of, of group selection. Uh, so we call the social instincts hypothesis, the idea that we've lived in, in tribal scale societies for, uh, for at least 100,000 years or so, maybe, maybe much longer. And uh, so we're uh, our social psychology is adapted to living in in rural governed uh, societies, and that's likely a product of of cultural group selection. You think? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, just one last question: Do do you think that it is possible for us, when it comes to our social psychology and the components of our psychology that are related to culture and cultural acquisition, uh, to talk about uh, uh, things that are purely biological or purely cultural constructs? Do, do you think that, that that is possible or that we really always have to consider the interaction between those two aspects of our nature. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's really hard to uh, uh, to uh, uh, wall off culture and, and biology and make and try to make them separate things. It it seems to me it's uh, uh, well think about the idea that uh, kids uh, have a capacity to imitate from the time that they're uh, 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 12 months old or so. So uh, uh, not only do, has have culture and genes co-evolved in historical, in evolutionary time, but in, in the developmental process, uh, we start uh, uh, mixing uh, culture and, and genes and development uh, by the age of, of 12 months. So uh, it, uh, so any uh, genetic differences that there might be between individuals, uh, personality differences, maybe those, uh, they certainly uh, are said to be largely genetic by, by many people, uh, but they're going to interact with the, with the culture you acquire. Uh, so uh, the genes and culture are going to co-develop as well as co-evolve. And, and so I think that uh, trying to, uh, uh, trying to dissect out culture and separate it from uh, from genes, who is uh, essentially an impossible uh, problem because uh, the the things have been entangled. Uh, there, there, this business of norm following is an example. If if the tribal social instincts hypothesis is correct, and of a case in which there's a, a kind of a cultural imperative that's uh, that's buried in our genes that the, the uh, we're were adapted to uh, live in, in norm-governed uh, uh, societies. And so, uh, as it were, culture smuggled uh, 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 critical elements into our genes that, uh, that make uh, fancy societies uh, possible. Uh, and at the same time, during development, uh, as I say, the, the developmental process is going to entangle 
phonetic and, and cultural features in a way that is makes it almost impossible to separate them. So I like to think of uh, of uh, culture as part of our biology. It's like it's like our arms and our legs. It's uh, uh, it's uh, a part of our biology. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, do you think that we could talk about culture uh, as, for example, Richard Dawkins uh, coined the term extended phenotype, that we could talk about culture as being part of our extended phenotype? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. That works for me. <laughs> okay, great. So, Dr. Richard, uh, Richardson, just before we go, uh, apart from your books, which I already referred in the introduction of this video, and I will leave links in the description box to them, uh, are there any good places on the internet where people can go if they want to get in touch with more of your work? Well, uh, certainly uh, people can uh, look at Rob's uh, or my websites, and uh, we have all of our uh, not all of our recent papers at any rate, uh, going back 20 or 30 years. So uh, you can uh, find it. Uh, well, I don't know. It'd, it'd take uh, people a year to read all the stuff that's on our website. So there's plenty there. And uh, uh, most of our colleagues uh, have, uh, have good websites as well. Uh, if people are interested in animal culture, there are Great books uh, by Kevin Leyland and and uh, by Hal Whitehead uh, on whales and Kevin's done a lot of work uh, uh, and the comparative primatologists uh, Mike Tomasello uh, has written uh, quite a number of uh, books so there's uh, uh, and most of them also have websites where you can download their their papers and uh, so yeah there's lots of resources out there. Okay, very good, Dr. Richardson. So uh, I would really like to thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. I really loved our conversation, so it was really a pleasure to have you here with us today. Well, it's my pleasure to, to talk to you. Something I love to do is talk about what I'm interested in, so uh, it's, it's my pleasure, strictly. Hi everybody, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. Uh, I've started this channel in February 2018 and so I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields and I would really like to ask you just to consider visiting my Patreon page and making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. Uh, and so otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Per Elga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Jolina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda and Brian Rivera. Thank you for all.